guys kind of got sandwiched there, didn't you? <laughs> well, good morning, everyone. Thank the Lord for rain. I know some people, I hope you didn't complain about it raining this week because ponds and lakes and everything needed it. So it was good. It was a while, wasn't it? About 48 hours of rain. But um, I tell you what, the one, one Sunday I'm going to I'm gonna take a run and jump up here. I, th I thought about doing it this Sunday, but I need to practice first. I, I don't want to pull something <laughs> on the real deal. So I am. I'm going to run up here and jump on this one time just to see if I can do it. You all clap, lay hands on me, and pray for me afterwards. For all, both. I'll need both of them. Oh, man. Well, we're going to dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 1 if you want to turn there. Um, there's five books in the Old Testament called the Wisdom Literature, mainly because they're kind of mixing a lot of poetry, and um, that'd be Job, Psalms. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and um, they're also known to be on wisdom because they're always emphasizing wisdom. Um, Proverbs is a, uh, is a book of contrast. What is the opposite of someone that's wise? Foolish. Foolish. And, um, and you also find out in Proverbs that you just can't help lazy. <laughs> you just can't help lazy. Uh, my dad talked a lot about Proverbs. He, he told me one time, he says, Son, don't ever co-sign for your brother or anybody else because then you are responsible for that debt. And so I never did that until my daughter had college loans. So I'm on that. But uh, I guess was, I had to break that rule on that. But, you know, these, these are the books that kind of contrast things and they, and they talk about attaining wisdom and understanding in your relationship with God and your relationship with one another. There's also a, a mention of wisdom in James when James writes, if any of you lack wisdom or need wisdom, you should what? Ask of God um, who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him, but you got to ask in a certain way. You got to ask in faith, no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by a wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded, unstable person. Double-minded, that's an interesting term there. It's disukos. It's actually mean a double-souled, having just someone who doesn't know what to do. They're kind of pulled between different directions. So wisdom comes from God. He said, if, you any, if any of you lack wisdom, ask God. Ask God to give you wisdom, but ask in an expectant way. Because if you ask just flippantly, he says, you're, you're not going to have any stability in, in your pursuit of wisdom and understanding. So this wisdom comes from God. It's God's wisdom. And this is what wisdom literature is all about. I'm going to mention uh, Acts 16 and 17 because that's where the Macedonian call came to uh, Paul in, in a vision when he was wanting to go up north and uh, the Holy Spirit just put the brakes on it and, and he had this vision of a man over in Macedonia across the water 
saying, come over here and help us. And so he did that. They ended up over in Philippi and Thessalonica and places like that. And then he traveled on south and he came to uh, a city that is, was very popular at that time. It's still kind of popular now, Athens. And uh, he didn't have much success there. He had some, but not a whole lot. And uh, so he moved on a little bit south of there, still in Greece, to a city called Corinth. Uh, Athens was uh, kind of like an intellectual city. That's where he went. He went kind of like on a, I can just see him on the quad of this campus. And these people were, these are philosophy majors, and they're just talking to him. And, and they really kind of laugh him off, especially when he talked about the resurrection of the dead. It says that a handful of people, and I think they that uh, Luke even names them. I mean, when you have people that come to the Lord and you name a few, that, that lets you know there was not a whole lot of response from the rest of the people. But this was their approach. You know, it was like, well, that's a weird idea, and they just kind of brushed him off. He, went, he goes south, and it's just a whole different culture when he gets into Corinth. It, it's um, whatever goes, goes. It, it, Corinth was a, a city, sin city. It was like all inclusive whatever and while he didn't face any persecution in Athens he faces it in Corinth from two different directions he faces it from the Jewish community because they just didn't like the whole idea that that Messiah came that way and we don't really believe that's the way he should come and and then the other people fight him the the uh, Greeks fight him because there's such a response. Isn't it kind of interesting when something becomes popular, people get nervous? It's okay if it just has minimal effect, a minimum effect. But when it starts having like a lot of effect, and, and there was a lot of effect. Even one of the leaders of the Jewish synagogue comes to the Lord. They become part of this community of faith. And uh, so a few years later, he writes his first letter to that church. And he mentions that visit in chapter 1. And if you're there in chapter 1, you'll see that uh, he's talking to a community of faith that's all over the map. They had decided that they would have favorite teachers in the church, and they would like to have this one speak and that one speak, and, and they kind of gravitated into these sections of the church as to who their favorite teacher. We're not too much different than that today, are we? Some people embrace a particular person, read all their books, and that's not really good to have just a, a single source of what you're reading. It's kind of like we need a kind of wide variety. And, uh, he, and I guess some of them gravitated to who baptized them because he mentions this. He mentions that, well, I didn't baptize anyone because in the opening verse I'm going to share with you is verse 17. I'm just giving you the backdrop of why he starts talking this way because he's already talking about how they're differing in who they like as their lecturer that day, their preacher, their teacher that day. And then he writes this in verse 17, if you're there in 1 Corinthians 1, for Christ did not send me to baptize. He didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Isn't that a... That, that's, that's a statement you ought to kind of think about wow, that, that is really antagonistic toward the cross. If I go and start talking with 
eloquence and trying to make a cerebral presentation says, I'm actually undercutting the power of the cross. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the sophist? Where is that person known to be really smart? Where is the teacher of the law? Those who know that he, you can see he's kind of like approaching both of the cultures that's now in the church. There's Jewish people in the church and there's Greeks who've come into the faith. So he's kind of approaching it from this uh, these two entities that's made up the church, their culture, their background. Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? We could say, well, they're all up in Athens. That's where they're at. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. It's kind of like what John writes. He came into the world and the world didn't recognize him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And I just kind of wish we could just sit and soak up these verses and just ponder them. Maybe have Q&A, maybe have a discussion. This would be good for table talk. What do you think about this? Two different cultures, two different groups. There's Jewish people in the church that he's writing to, and there's these Greeks that are in the church that he's writing to. And these are the two groups that opposed him outside of those who believe. He, in fact, came under such persecution and such uh, pressure that the Lord came to him. I think this is in Acts 17. The Lord comes to him. If you got a red-letter edition of the Bible, you can pick it out real easy because it's in red letters. Jesus comes to him in a vision, and he tells him basically this. This is when he's in Corinth. This is when he gets there, and he's having all kinds of stuff happening. People are getting saved. People are coming to faith. The Jews, some of the Jews are getting saved. Some of the Greeks are getting saved. They're coming in together. Two very different backgrounds coming into one community of faith. And yet he must be contemplating getting out of there. Because this is what the Lord tells him. Um, don't be afraid. I am with you, and nobody's going to harm you. You need to stay here because I have many people in this city. That's the last thing he said to him. I believe he's, he was telling Saul, now Paul, he says, you see this as a trouble spot, sin city, troubled church, but don't leave because there's a lot of people in this city that I know will come to faith if you stay. In the very next verse, and Acts says he stayed a year and a half. He stayed in a year and a half kind of in a setting he didn't want to be there. Have you ever been there? Lord, I really don't want to be here because there's this is uncomfortable. I, I'm not getting anywhere with these people. There's just not moving like I need. Probably in some of your D groups you have people like that. They're just not moving like they need to be moved. And we start giving up and it's like, I'm wasting my time here. And yet after the Lord appears to him, he stays another 
year and a half, and he writes to them about the wisdom of God. He's writing them about having not their wisdom and not the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world missed the Lord. They didn't recognize him. They didn't receive him, and they were operating in their wisdom, he says. But if they get the wisdom of God, and this is what he's writing to them about the wisdom of God. I I asked one of the young people. She is my uh, test case many times, and I asked her, says, uh, define wisdom for me. And her answer was this. This is too early in the morning for me to do that. <laughs> I says, what do you think about the wisdom of God? What is the wisdom of God? And when you, when you really kind of ponder, how would you define wisdom? And I love it when dictionaries get of or pertaining to being wise. Don't you like that? It's just really so enlightening to get that kind of definition. Well, here's one definition I pulled up. The soundness of an action or decision with regard to the application of experience, knowledge, and good judgment. Wisdom is just not experience, is it? And it's definitely not just knowledge. Because some of the most intellectual people, I'm not going to say this. (laughs) It's like what we call in the South, Horse sense, <laughs> common sense. You know, they're like a, a physicist, but they can't figure out how to turn a stove on. I'm, I'm, I shouldn't even say that. But, but Webster's Dictionary kind of combines all this into three statements. It says, an ability to discern inner qualities and relationships, bracketed insight. Good sense, horse sense, <laughs> common sense. Good sense, which means the capacity to make a good judgment on something. Or accumulated philosophical or scientific learning, knowledge. So how does that apply to that last three words in verse 24, the wisdom of God? Well, when you look closer into the text, you know, when he starts talking about preaching the gospel, I've come to preach the gospel that the preaching of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God unto those who are being saved. And he says the preaching of the cross to the Jewish people is a stumbling block. The preaching of the cross to the intellectuals is foolishness because the preaching of the cross does not compute in the mind of a person who is thoroughly Jewish in their understanding. Think about this. The Jews and the Greeks are two different cultures. They're in the, that's their background. Here they come into the church, and he's writing to Jews and Greeks who are saved, but he's telling them, this is the way your culture is not coming to the Lord like you did. Because if you're Jewish, you had to come through the scandalon. You had to come through the scandal. That's what that word stumbling block, it comes from the word scandal, where we get our word scandal. It's, a, it's an upheaval in people's thinking. They just can't compute it. And to the intellectual... In that day and time, crucifixion was like, are you kidding me? You're saying that someone is saving the world through crucifixion and they're they're thinking that is as worse a thing could happen to anyone. That's possible. It's the worst kind of death. It's the worst kind of being associated with that kind of death. And in their minds, like, really? Really someone who endured that kind of awful death is going to save me? And to them... That was what? Foolishness. Those who truly believe that Messiah 
This is what the Jewish people had struggled. This is why before he wrote this book and before he became a believer, this is why the writer of this letter at one point in his life was completely committed to destroying Christianity. Why? Why was he so dedicated? Because in his mind, a Messiah that came that way was an affront. It totally offended his thinking. Messiah will come and deliver Israel. He will restore political greatness to Israel. We won't be under Roman occupation. We won't be under the occupation of anybody. And so for a person who really believed that Messiah is going to come that way, anyone coming and telling them the Messiah came like Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, he died on the cross. It was the atoning work of, of God in him to atone for the sins of the world. And for some reason in their mind, they just couldn't compute it without the Spirit of God. It was the Spirit of God that had to get through to them. So the scandal for Jews was, that, that's not, that can't be the way Messiah comes. If you look at verse 22, it says, Jews demand signs. And Greeks want what? Wisdom. Jews not only would really like to have signs and wonders. They demand signs. And they're not talking about the miracles that Jesus did because they dismissed the miracles he did because who he was. So they're looking for external phenomenon to make them say, well, show us, prove us, prove to us. And yet the preaching of the cross brought many of them to faith. Stumbling block. It's a revelation of God. God's wisdom to break through that stumbling block, that scandal. And we're, we're not so much dominated by religiosity today as we are by Greek culture today. If you really looked at America, which way do you think America would be right now? Would they be more prone to religiosity or prone to let's include everything? Let's just be all inclusive. And for the Greeks, they were all about that. In fact, those people in Athens thought Paul was very interesting until he drew the line on resurrection from the dead. And then they thought, well, you're just crazy. But they were thinking, oh, we haven't heard this philosophy before. We need to just hear this out. This is kind of new. This is what we do here. We just discuss new ideas. Because why? They were all inclusive. It's just whatever makes you happy makes you happy, and everybody should agree with it. You should be happy that way. It's kind of like our culture today, right? And if you go to verse 21, you'll see that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to both groups. Read it again with me. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness, this crazy idea, you might say, of what was preached to save those who believe. You know, here we are in the uh, centennial I was listening to a podcast the other day of Alistair McGrath, and he's, he's, he's in Oxford, so he's one of these brilliant guys, but he's a committed believer. And he, uh, I think, has written a short book on Albert Einstein and, and how his thoughts on faith are computed when you research Albert Einstein. This year is a centennial of Einstein's theory of general relativity was proven. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know it until I listened to the podcast. So I looked it up, and sure enough, some of you might know this, 
Author Stanley Eddington's 1919 expedition confirmed Einstein's theory. Anybody uh, any remotely remember anything like that? Well, here it is. Einstein's prediction for the deflection of light by the sun during the total solar eclipse of May 29, 1919, which helped cement the status of general relativity as a true theory. How about that? The little egghead stuff for this morning. Since then, many observations have confirmed the correctness of general relativity. It was not, he didn't really discover it, it was just confirmed, and Albert Einstein gets the credit for that. But I don't know if you've ever heard about the letter they call the God, the God letter. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Um, here again, when you start researching, there's all kind of wonderful things you discover. In January of 1936, remember 1919, he had been proposing that this theory of relativity was there. They just didn't have the external proof and observation of these solar flashes in that eclipse kind of proved what Einstein had been saying. People would, uh, the atheists loved Einstein because they think he was atheist. But this is a letter that he got in January of 1936 from a, a girl named Phyllis in the sixth grade. And I'm going to read you that letter and read you his response to her letter. Her letter goes like this. Dr. Einstein, we have brought up the question, quote, do scientists pray, end of quote, in our Sunday school class. It began by asking whether we could believe in both science and religion. We are writing to scientists and other important men to try and have our own question answered. We would feel greatly honored if you will answer our question. Do scientists pray? And what do they pray for? We're in the sixth grade Miss Ellis's class. Respectfully yours, Phyllis. I'm sure Phyllis did not realize that within a few days she would get a response from Albert Einstein. This kind of says something about him responding to a little girl's letter, especially when it comes to, like, religion and science. Does anybody want to hear what he wrote back? Yeah, <laughs> I'll tell you later. No, I'll do it. <laughs> it's easy. You can pull it up. You know, thank the Lord for Google. It's just out there. He said, Dear Phyllis, I will attempt to reply to your question as simply as I can. Here's my answer. Scientists believe that every occurrence, including the affairs of human beings, is due to the laws of nature. Therefore, scientists cannot be inclined to believe that the course of events can be influenced by prayer, that is, by a supernaturally manifested wish. However, we must concede that our actual knowledge of these forces is imperfect so that in the end the belief in the existence of a final ultimate spirit rests on a kind of faith such belief remains widespread even with the current achievements in science but also everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that some spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe, one that is vastly superior to that of man. In this way, the pursuit of science leads to a religious feeling of a special sort 
which is surely quite different from the religiosity of someone more naive. With cordial greetings, your A. Einstein. Now we have, if you think about it, in a single person, we have both cultures that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians. Because Albert Einstein is Jewish, was Jewish. Raised in Jewish custom, raised with Jewish tradition, raised with Passover, raised with the Torah until he got into his teen years. Some say as early as 13, he just kind of started not believing in any of that. But here we have a person who has religious as a, religion as a background, but also has ultra science and accomplishments as background. And here he's kind of like weighing this question by this little girl, does prayer make a difference? Scientifically, he says he didn't think so. But this is what science cannot answer. They can answer and give you a description of what or how, but they cannot give you the answer to why. Why are we here? What is the purpose of being here? All of these fantastic things that as a genius, everybody considers Albert Einstein is one of the great geniuses. The atheists claim him, but when you read this, it's kind of like they would kick him off the list if they read this. And then people who are Christians would like to claim him, but that's not exactly a confession of faith in Jesus, is it? But do you see the, the struggle of people in the wisdom of the world trying to understand the wisdom of God? And yet the, a person who could really kind of think that way really comes to the conclusion that there's a wisdom out there, a wisdom way beyond us because we're imperfect. We don't know everything. We can't know everything. Everything that we're discovering now, and it's kind of interesting how intelli uh, artificial intelligence is coming along and how it's kind of spooky as to what you can have in an iPhone now or a computer. I was telling someone just this week about I got one chance to be on a VIP tri uh, uh, trip on a guided missile carrier out of Mayport Naval Base. And I was like, somebody says, you want to go on a VIP? I says, yeah, sure. I had no idea what I was about to experience. We went out into the seas, and they did exercise. They showed all these different things. We went down. This is 1980s, by the way. We went down into what they call the war room, and these big screens, and the, and the track ball then, it wasn't a mouse, it was a little ball. You remember that? We had to, well... They had all these different vessels out there that was like possible hostile forces. And that, that technician would move that trackball over to one of those on the radar, hit a button, and then pull it up, what it was, how fast it was going, everything about it. And then they would hit another to send that information to a launch, a missile launcher up on deck, and we got to see both. We went down, saw that. We got to go up and watch that, that launcher come up, zero in. You can, hear, you can hear it reading the information. All of a sudden, it just stops and locks in. And he says, if he hits launch, it will destroy what it's heading for. And this is what I thought. Hallelujah, I'm on this side. I'm glad I'm, glad I'm on this side. That was 1980s. The science now dwarfs that. It is so 
tech, and we are, we are just going like mock speed into information, right? And none of that will tell us why we're here and what is going on. The struggle of the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God is expressed in one sentence. And I'm going to finish with this and the praise team can come up. The final verse, the final verse. I want you to look close at the final verse with me. And here's what i like for you to do. Just take this passage and sit down and discuss it with someone. But think about what he says. And this is not the end of it. I'm just, this is the end of the text I'm using. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Here we might say, what is the wisdom of God? Describe the wisdom of God. And, and we might be strained, but really, this is the definition. That's the definition. What is the wisdom of God? It's the person of Jesus. That's the wisdom of God. What is the power of God? It is the person of Jesus. Does he live in you? Does he live in you? Yes. It's not a trick question. He lives in us. So what does that mean? We have not only the definition of the power of God in us, we have the source of the power of God. And not only do we have the capacity to know and understand and make better decisions, but we have the one person that can give us that wisdom. Yesterday I did a wedding. And I write, I write specific vows and, and the whole service I write out after talking to the people and I just says, God, what, what do I need to say to them? What do I need to, in the few minutes I'm standing in front of them, and both the groom and the bride, I finish this on their role in marriage before I ask for their vows, is that they are to be to each other as Christ and the church is to each other. And I finish with this. Ask God to show you. I said it to the groom first. Ask God to show you how to do that. And to her, ask God how to show you how to do that. How to be a role of like the church life is to Jesus. Because that's Ephesians 5. How many of you know that most of the things that we have in our lives that we face, we don't have sufficient wisdom for it? And in any of us who thought, and I put the word first person here, any of us who thought that we knew what marriage was going to be about prior to saying I do, didn't have a clue as to why. What it meant about. All of a sudden, you, uh, you know, Brenda didn't know that I was a crazy football fanatic until two punts are blocked in the return for touchdowns in the Auburn game, and I drop kicked the Ottoman across the living room of our trailer. 1972. Some of you remember that. 
And I says, what? And I just went, boom, the bottom went flying through the air. And she looked at me and she went, <laughs> turned around and walked off to the bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> 